Father and our God, we are people who trust that your mercy endures forever as your word has said. We find in you, O God, a faithful God who, who long suffers with each of us. Because as indeed we look within, we find that there is evil. And it seems that the closer we get to Jesus, the more evil we see. And Father, we count, we bank, we, we claim a mercy that endures forever. We are a people who have found grace. And having found grace, we have found forgiveness. A forgiveness that we didn't deserve. A forgiveness that we can never earn. A forgiveness that is ours because Jesus Christ has died in our place. It is because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we have been reconciled with the God that we offended. It is because of His blood that we have been made friends. Sinners in God. Made friends by Jesus Christ and His atoning work. Our Father, forgive us that we ever dream, that we ever entertain the thought that we could please you by being good enough and by being good enough earn our way into heaven. It is nothing but an idol, O oh God. An idol that we have worshipped for way too long. Self. Thinking that Jesus was great but the one who ultimately saved us was our own good works. Oh God, how offensive that is in heaven. And for those of us who have found grace, how offensive it is to us now to think that we ever thought that we could be good enough to get into heaven. We are not, oh God. We own that gladly. But we greatly rejoice in this marvelous salvation that you have wrought in Christ. Our Father, there are... Um, Families in this room who have been racked with some kind of pain, whether it be marital or financial or parental, and we pray that um, as we spend this hour together, that you will communicate hope to the base of their souls. I do remember family, the family Lord that has been that has been so assaulted in the loss of their son in this accident of yesterday and I pray that you will comfort them our father for others of us who are in a broad place in our lives right now we take no credit but we're glad to be here and we pray that you'll get glory in our prosperity as well as our difficulties Lord accept our gifts they are given to the, uh, the one who alone can approve of them it matters not about the size, it matters about the heart's condition. And there's not a one of us here who can read that. But we give, O oh God, not the leftovers. We give sacrificially. And I pray that you'll be pleased by the way we worship you through our giving. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. book of Judges, and we'll continue our study of that book as we begin at verse 33. Judges 6, verse 33. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 33. 
Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will, you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. <clears throat> let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to know much about Gideon to know something about the fleece. In fact, um, if you know anything about Gideon, what, you, what people normally know has to do with this incident right here, this issue of the fleece. This putting out a fleece. Is a, is a very familiar idea in evangelical circles, and I'm not so sure that it's not uh, pretty familiar in uh, circles that are not evangelical. Even the, the non-Christian world seems to know something about this idea of putting out a fleece. <clears throat> not only is it familiar, but it's very important. It's important in the sense that um, finding the will of God, which Gideon seems to be doing, finding the will of God for for a Christian is something that we take very seriously. Making right, good, solid, sound decisions is something that we take very seriously in the, in the Christian church. And so we're, we're eager to find out and be led by God. And so this incident has become a proverb almost among us. Basically, it has to do with our asking God to guide us in a, in a decision by His and guide us by fulfilling a certain condition that we ourselves lay down. That's what laying out this fleece is all about. We're asking God to guide us by meeting a condition that we uh, set up. Um, if she picks up on the fourth ring, that'll be the woman I'm supposed to marry. Or uh, if someone calls my home to buy my car by 12 o'clock today, that means I am to go into the ministry. Um, those things, ladies and in fact, that last one, uh, that was the, uh, the very issue of a whole book that I read one time about a man's, in fact, some of you have read it. It's a, it's a fairly old book, but uh, this man said that he, uh, uh, he wanted to know whether he was supposed to go in the ministry, and so he was going to sell his television set, and if it was bought by noon... Uh, he knew that he was supposed to go in the ministry. Now, um, what I want to do this morning is that I want to address this issue of the fleece first and, uh, and sort of clear it out of the way because although we Christians, uh, we consider this a very important issue, I, I want to suggest to you that it is not the most important part of this text. 
Um, but hopefully we can satisfy at least some of your curiosities over this, this fleece issue. And then we can concentrate on what is the issue in this text. As we begin to try to figure out the fleece thing, what I want to do first for you is and I, want to, I want to tell you a little bit about the backdrop in which it takes place. It's, uh, it's the annual invasion from the Midianites, the eighth straight year, next year, same song. Here they come again to uh, uh, ravage and pillage in the, in the countryside and steal everything that we've grown. And um, at this particular time of the year, when the Midianites have come back again, under the direction of the spirits filling in Gideon's life, this plain, unpretentious farmer blows a trumpet, a ram's horn, uh, because that was the thing that signified uh, in the ancient Near East a call to arms. This was something that generals and, and military leaders were supposed to do, not some kind of uh, common farmhand. But uh, Gideon blows nonetheless, and its effect on the countryside was downright electrifying. It was like it was as if um, bolts of lightning had struck all across the region, and this this war cry comes up from these particular tribes, and this this gathering of people begin to gather around Gideon because his cry to uh, his call to arms has galvanized Israel into into action. This, this bugle blast, which had not anything like it, not anything like it had been heard in Israel for over seven years, seven long, dreary, dusty years. This bugle blast was a shout that seemed to stir the blood and raise the blood pressure of the people of Israel. And beginning in his own clan, the Abizarites, men begin to drop their rakes and their sickles, and they pick up swords and shields and spears and gather uh, in, a, in a group of men that are going to be led by someone that they've never met. This obscure farmer boy that they have never met. What an unbelievable spectacle when 32,000 men leave their farms and their flocks and their families and they, they heed the rallying cry of an obscure farmer, which, is, which I said they've never even heard of before. And all of the annals of of Israel, ladies and gentlemen, nothing this remarkable had happened ever before. An unknown raises, puts his lips to a ram's horn, and Israel rallies. Here we have a ragtag volunteer army of 32,000, none of whom had been militarily trained, none of them had ever experienced the bloodbath known as war. And Gideon knew that, if, that they were no match for the 135,000 Amalekites that had gathered um, some four miles away. Gideon, of all people, understood that if victory was to ever be had, it would depend not on the military genius of Gideon. It would depend on God in his presence. Uh, if God wasn't in this, they were doomed. When we were in seminary, and actually we were just about to graduate, a, a man came to speak at chapel in, in seminary. His name was John Haggai. Some of you have perhaps read his book, None of These Diseases. But uh, he said to us something that has became, became kind of a watchword among us. Uh, he said this to us young strapping seminary grads. He said, I want you men to go out 
and attempt something for God that is so great that if God is not in it, you will most certainly fail. Well, that's where Gideon is. He is about to attempt something that if God is not in it with him, he will most certainly fail. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the setting. It is the backdrop of this whole incident that has become almost parabolic among us. This incident of the fleece is set in that particular surrounding. A, an, an occasion where Gideon knows that if God is not in it, they're, gonna, they're doomed. And it is in that posture that Gideon does this fleece thing. Now, guys, most of what is said, um, at least what I read, and most of what is written about this fleece incident is uh, rather unflattering to Gideon. Not many people have very many nice things to say about what Gideon did. Some uh, suggest that this was an evidence of Gideon's unbelief because God's word was not enough for him, and it should have been. And so Gideon was just being, is exercising his own weak faith. Others have suggested that it was, an, it was an obvious display of his pride because what he was saying, in essence, was God, uh, uh, you have to do what I tell you to do before I ever do what you tell me to do. Um, and those who write so derogatorily about Gideon conclude that what you have here in verses 36 through uh, 40 is certainly no biblical model for decision-making. And they're pleading with the, with the Christian community to stay away from this thing. Don't, don't uh, be guilty of anything even similar to such a thing. Well, guys, uh, I must say that with that position, I am in substantial agreement. Not complete, but substantial agreement. And before we're finished, what I'd like to do is offer you a minority opinion. And I do mean it is a minority. But we'll, um, we'll look at that. We'll save that for later. But what I want to do now, um, in hopes of instructing the people of God concerning this issue, I want to give you five or six little principles concerning the will of God in our lives. Now, folks, if you have begun your nap, wake up. This is good stuff. Uh, it's not good because I said it. It's good because it's good stuff. And, and, and I know that from time to time, you face issues where you're trying to figure out what it is, what is God's will for you. So listen, this will help you. Uh, it may not be comprehensive and tell you all that you need to know, but it will help you. So listen up. Number one, 90% of God's will for you is available to you. It is all recorded for you right here in this book. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I just picked that, that, that figure of 90%. Now, we can make it 96% if you like. But uh, 90% of God's will in your life is already known via this book. So all we need to do for 90% of our decisions is simply obey the, the revealed propositional truth of God and we'll be fine. For instance, if you are considering marrying a non-believer, I want you to know you don't need to pray another second. Because God's will 
is outlined for you very clearly in this book. The Christians aren't supposed to marry outside the faith. So you don't need to wonder anymore, because I suggest to you, 90% of God's will for you is right here waiting for you. Our problem is, we don't know what's in this book. So we're flopping around, wondering what we should do, when in fact, God has spoken. It's all available to you. Let me stick this second principle in here now, and then, but I want you to tuck that 90% thing away then for a minute. We're going to come back to it. But I also want to say this, because I think it, it needs to be said now. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. We believe that, don't we? Well, guys, the Holy Spirit, when called upon, can be trusted to guide you aright. He is not out to drive you into some pit. You know, while I was away, you know, I was gone last week and uh, I was spending a week in Bermuda. <laughs> um, it was a tough assignment. But, um, but while over there, I got all well and then came back to Memphis and I'm sick again. So I'm, I'm moving the church to Bermuda. Um, I'm sure y'all wouldn't mind. Um, believe me, you wouldn't. But uh, while over there, I, I ran across a text that I want to just, just, just listen. I want to read you two verses, but the, verse 20 is the one I want you to hear. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Because Jesus Christ has spilled blood, me and the Heavenly Father are friends. There's friendship between me and Him. Because God, because His Son has spilled His blood for me. I simply say that to tell you, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside is not out to grind your nose in the dust. He can be trusted. He can be trusted to lead you and to lead you right. Now those are two. First of all, 90% in the Holy Spirit can be trusted. Here's the third one. Ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> I'm here to suggest to you that God doesn't care one whit about where you go to school or who you marry or what kind of job you take. Um, he doesn't care whether you choose Mississippi State or choose to go to a very fine school at the University of Tennessee. It doesn't matter which school you go to, ladies and gentlemen, but it is very important once you arrive on that campus and enter the dorm and go through Russia and go to one of the spring formals, then, ladies and gentlemen, it is very important the decisions that you make. And I'm here to tell you gladly that all of those decisions are outlined for you right here in the book. It matters not where you go to school. What does matter is how you act while you're there. It doesn't matter who you marry. You can't marry a non-Christian, but within the faith, it doesn't matter. There is, have you ever heard this thing about the right man, right, wrong woman concept? You know, there's only one woman out there that I'm supposed to marry. And gosh, if I go to the wrong school, I'll miss her and have to marry somebody who's a real slug. 
I've had people say, oh, i got to find the right school because I know my husband's waiting on me there and I've got to be there for, you know, to find him. Ladies and gentlemen, there are probably 10,000 people that you can marry and live happily ever after. It's not important as to who you marry, but how you conduct that marriage, how you build your home. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the concern of God. And I'm here to tell you gladly, it's outlined for you in this book. We have people marrying and, and trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together without the box top. Well, the box top is available, ladies and gentlemen. It's right here. You know, um, I went to see a woman one time when I was pastoring in Florida. Oh, actually, I went to see a man. And uh, we was up in close to Gainesville. And, and he was angry. He was angry at me. He was angry at everybody who named the name of Christ. Because his wife had just left him because a preacher had told her that if she, if there's the right man, wrong man principle. And you obviously married the wrong man. So just dump him and go get the right one. Now, let's just imagine that one of us, just one, it's all it takes, that one of you married the wrong woman. Well, if that's true, that means the real woman that you were supposed to marry married the wrong man. And the right man that she was supposed to marry, he married the wrong woman. And then you multiply, because then that means that the rest of the people married wrong people. And that means all, all around this globe, ladies and gentlemen, all of us are married to the wrong person. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm pretty happy with the one I chose, whether she's wrong or right. And I don't want to miss out. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter. What matters is how you conform your marriage to a biblical principle that is clearly outlined in this book. It doesn't matter what career path you take either, ladies and gentlemen. But what does matter is your ethics while you're in that career. It matters how you conduct your business. And whether terms of ethics and honesty and integrity are present in that business. That, ladies and gentlemen, is important. And that's mentioned in here. Several years ago, there was a book that was quite, uh, I mean, it just made the rounds in the Christian circles. It was called Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. It's a good book, and you might, if you can find it, you all might want to get your hands on it. I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure everything in there is perfect, but... But he does a remarkable, masterful job of critiquing this view of God that says there's only one particular thing for you to do in a given case. And that correct decision making depends on whether or not you find out that one thing. And if you miss that, you will not any longer be in God's perfect will. You will only be in God's permissive will and thus consigned to a second class citizenship in the kingdom of God. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is very hurtful to the people of God. And Friesen attacks it and attacks it dramatically. I want to read you one sentence out of his book. Or maybe it's two sentences. It's two sentences. The major point is this. God does not have an ideal, detailed life plan uniquely designed for each believer that must be discovered in order to make correct decisions. The concept of an individual will of God cannot be established by reason, by experience, biblical teaching, or biblical example. Dang. We're free. We've been set free to go out and find how God is leading us. And 90% of that, he's already given us. I, um, I somewhat uh, hesitate to use this example because someone, I'm sure, will find fault with it. 
Um, but because not only do people care what kind of car I drive, they care what kind of clothes I wear and where I go on vacation, and certainly what kind of movies that I watch. Well, I, I want you to know this was a PG-13 movie. Uh, it was recommended by someone in the congregation, and unfortunately there was a thing or two in it that was not exactly what you would call um, good for your 10-year-old uh, daughter. But um, I don't have a 10-year-old daughter. Um, I do have a wife. But anyway, we went to see this movie, and it's a good movie. Very, very frankly, and I wish, I mean, I, I hope you go see it. Now, don't blame me if you're offended. Um, but anyway, it's called Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Did you see it? And I won't ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it. It's really a cute little movie. And, and you know, when it, when it was over, my wife and I looked at each other and said, now that was a good movie. Um, anyway, uh, it's about a man who, it starts with him uh, saying goodbye to his girlfriend as he heads across the ocean to go uh, into London and work in a bank and et cetera, et cetera. And um, he goes on and he says, I'll be back and we'll get married and our love will last and da 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 Well, it turns out that he finds something else to love over, I mean, money uh, in London. He comes back and becomes a banker. He's a banker in New York City. He's the most wealthiest man that ever lived or whatever. And um, uh, he forgets the girl. And so one night while he's uh, sleeping in his penthouse apartment with uh, a, a closet full of $4,000 suits, he has a dream. And he has a dream about the girl that he left in the airport and what his life would have been like had he married her. And the dream suggests that if had he married her, he'd have been a tire salesman instead of the banker and he didn't, couldn't wear the $4,000 suits and all that business. It's a great little ending, and I hope you'll go see it, and I won't ruin it for you. But here's the point. It doesn't make any difference whether you're a banker or a tire salesman. But it makes a whole heap of, business, of difference how you sell those tires. It makes a big difference, ladies and gentlemen, a big difference how you deal with your customers or with the bank. And I want you to know how you deal with those customers is outlined for you in this book. Does that not liberate you? That just, that just liberates me. What I need to do is go find out the 90%. Now, two other quick things. I think another thing that the Christian church neglects when it comes to chasing after God is a statement that Jesus makes in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You know, um, it's, it's one we even got songs about. It, it's very familiar. It simply says this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Could I point out just this? That's true. <laughs> it's, a, it's a statement made by Jesus, and he means it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and it will be open. See, and you'll find. You know, ladies and gentlemen, G. Campbell Morgan said... Wherever there are hearts waiting for the voice of God, that voice is to be heard. A Christian who sits beneath the will of God, beneath God's word and says, "In fact, let me read you this. This is what James Dobson says he prays quite frequently, and if it's good enough for James, it's good enough for me. But he says this, "Lord, I need to know what you want me to do, and I am listening." Please speak to me through my friends' books, magazines I pick up and read, and through circumstances. He says he prays that a lot. You know, ladies and gentlemen, 
Where there is a heart longing to hear the voice of God and willing to yield to that voice, that voice will be heard. Ask, seek, knock. Keep pursuing. Because you're going to come upon something that will be the very voice of God. One last thing and I'll move on. I say this to last because I really think it's the least profound. Um, there are three different things that you need to consider when you're trying to make a decision. Number one, is it biblical? Ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know you don't need to worry about whether or not you should open up a brothel. You don't need to worry about it because it's not biblical. So, is it biblical? What are the circumstances? Just like James Dobson says, Lord, lead me. I'm listening through magazines, articles, conversations, friends, television. You lead me. I'm listening. Circumstances. <clears throat> and then finally, what is that voice within whispering to you? What's it saying? What do you think that, that inner voice that is there is, is saying to you? Do I move? Do I not move? It doesn't matter, ladies and gentlemen. What does matter is where you live. You're honorable to God in all your ways. And the good news is, all of those honorable ways are defined for us. Our problem is, we don't know what's in there. I am absolutely flabbergasted when I talk to people about marriage and they never heard that the Bible contains something about marriage. Well, guys, it's in there. I hope that'll liberate you. Uh, very honestly, um, uh, that's about that's about all I got concerning you and the discovery of the will of God. Now, let's get back to Gideon, and I want to give you a different perspective. I told you it was a minority opinion, and it indeed is a minority opinion. But the the, the opinions that exist in the evangelical community are just about as numerous as the uh, as the books that are written. But I must tell you that the, the majority of them really are denouncing what takes place here in Gideon's life. <clears throat> but there's one part of the text that nobody seems to mention very much. And I wanted you to see it. It's in verse 36 and verse 37. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Notice he mentions that same thing in verse 37. As you have said. Which prompts me to conclude, ladies and gentlemen, that Gideon's act here is not as dastardly as we might have first thought. Gideon wants to be assured of God's promise to save Israel through him. Yes. He is hesitant. Yes. But he is not unbelieving. What I think you have here is not the absence of faith, but the caution of faith. I can tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. When I'm sitting in the chapel at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and John Haggai is telling me, go do something so great for God that you are doomed to failure if he is not in it, I want to make sure it was God talking. I want to make sure, you know, I, I had three choices when I graduated from seminary. I chose the riskiest. And I want to make sure that it was God. And I think that's all you find here. Gideon is not saying, I'm not going to budge unless you prove yourself to me. What I do think he is saying is, God, did I hear you correctly? As you have said. There's a lot of difference in those two positions. 
That is, did I hear you correctly or I ain't budging? A lot of difference in those two. And I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that's all you find here is a man wanting to make sure that he heard rightly. You know, there's a, I, I get a kick sometimes out of the evangelical community and we're doing a lot of things that I think are, you know, pretty cheesy and uh, pretty ridiculous. But one of the things that I, that I, I love, I would like to... I would like to remove from every bumper that's, uh, that I find. It's a little bumper sticker that says, um, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, um, you can remove the middle clause. It doesn't even matter whether you believe it or not. God said it, and that settles it. But um, I don't know about the rest of you. That might be a snazzy little bumper sticker, and the theology that it contains might, might really worm you. But it doesn't, it doesn't always neatly cover the struggles that I face as a Christian. It doesn't for you. To me, what that bumper sticker does is reduce things down to absurd uh, consequences. You know? Because some of the things that I'm in, some of the things that you're in, are a lot more complex than that. And I think you'll find from an occasion that yours, there's going to be a certain caution to your faith as well. Now, I do think that the whole incident reinforces the importance of our daily fellowship with God. Gang, we, we need to hear from God and we need to hear from Him often. And uh, the more we do, the more clear the voice becomes. Now, one other encouragement about this story, and then I'll move on and we'll, we'll wrap this up. But one other encouragement is found in Psalm 103. And it's, it's verse 14, and you know the text. He says, God knows our frame. In Psalm 103, verse, God knows our frame, and He remembers that we are but dust. Guys, you're not a genius. And I ain't either. And He knows our frame, and knows that we are but dust. And the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within so that He can hurt us. He dwells within to make us more and more conform to the image of Christ. He can be trusted. Because the blood of Jesus has made us friends. Now, <clears throat> let me close with this. We have at least four minutes for me to cover what I think is the real important part of this text. And it has nothing to do with the fleece. Let me cover that real hurriedly and then we'll quit. I want to suggest to you that the primary truth that ought to enchant us in this story is contained in verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You know, one of the other translations that I checked and read about, um, one of the older translations says this, The Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. Can't you just see that? The Spirit of God getting ready to go do something, so he snatches up this Gideon, and you know, he hasn't got any abilities, and he just kind of clothes himself with Gideon, and so he goes out to do this thing. Everybody's saying, way to go, Gideon. When in fact... What's happened is, Gideon, has the Spirit of the Lord come upon him. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know the text in uh, Ephesians 5 that says, it's in verse 18, and it goes like this, Be not drunk with new wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what being filled with the Holy Spirit is being likened to in that text? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is being likened unto 
intoxication. Now, none of us know what it is to me, what it means to be intoxicated, I'm sure. But you've certainly read books about it and seen movies. And you know what intoxication brings? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it dominates, it controls. We kind of stagger around while the alcohol is in charge. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is saying that when we're filled with the Spirit, He's dominating. He's in charge. All of our thoughts are brought under the sway of the Holy Spirit's domination of us. What you find here is a man clothed with the presence of God. So nothing else is needed. God has invaded a man's life through which he is about to accomplish great success. Gideon is about to go out and accomplish something that because God was with him, success is assured. One quick story, and it's a short one and we're finished. But um, There's a story I read, and some of you have heard this story before, about uh, Dwight L. Moody. There was a group of pastors in Britain who had gathered to consider whether or not to invite D.L. Moody over to conduct a a crusade in their city. So they'd all gathered to, you know, whether it's good or bad, or, you know, to debate the issue. And so one of the, one of the pastors in the room spoke up and said, Why does it have to be Moody? Does Moody have a, a, a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And another guy chimed in and said, No, but it seems very apparent that the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that men are starved for that kind of leadership. They will follow a man who is God-centered instead of self-centered. They will follow him against all odds into a very fierce battle. There is in us an inherent need to be led by somebody we know is dominated by God. We long for it. We look for it. We gravitate towards it. And we can be found anywhere that's found. Oh, that you might be led by such a man. And oh, that we might be such people. Our Father, I, I pray that you will indeed raise up um, men who have nothing, no axes to grind, no points to prove. They simply long to be clothed and dominated by the Holy Ghost of God. Might we find a church full of men and women just like that? Because the thing that we long for is not to build the kingdom of men. We long to build the kingdom of of the living God. So help us by giving us men upon whom has come the Spirit of God. Might we find our leaders inebriated, inebriated by the Holy Spirit. Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, if they are still strangers to grace, if they are still wondering what Christianity is all about, perhaps thinking that the way to get to heaven is to work their way, to earn their place.
Oh God, might they see how big a lie of the devil that really is. I pray, Father, that you will use our service of worship here today to draw them to the beautiful Savior that we have found. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.